Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. We come this morning to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is one of the great chapters of the Bible. I want to read the first three verses and then verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This chapter lists in chronological sequence the heroes and heroines of faith from the Old Testament. It begins with righteous Abel in verse 4, and it continues to the Maccabean martyrs in the intertestamental period at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. The chapter's been called the roll call of the faithful, the portrait gallery of faith, the great hall of faith, and the Westminster Abbey of the faithful. You may be familiar with the fact that Westminster Abbey in London contains over 3,000 memorials to important people Charles Dickens is memorialized there, C.S. Lewis, David Livingstone, Geoffrey Chaucer, George Frederick Handel, Rudyard Kipling, as well as many kings and queens and notable poets and scientists in British history. I think Charles Darwin is even interred at Westminster Abbey. And what we have in Hebrews chapter 11 is a portrait gallery a memorial section, if you please, of people who've gone before who've been faithful to God. People much like us who have faced the difficulties of life with perseverance. They've not given up or given out or given in. It's a divinely inspired picture of what the Holy Spirit calls in the next chapter, a great cloud of witnesses, as if we're surrounded by all of these people who witness to us even though they're dead, yet they continue to speak that God is faithful to take care of his people who pass through the journey of life. Here we have examples of the principle that was laid down at the end of chapter 10, verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. You may know that that statement from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith, is repeated three times in the New Testament. In Romans 1.17, the emphasis is on the just. In Galatians 3.11, the emphasis is on shall live. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the just shall live by faith. The emphasis is on what it means to live by faith. And this is the main thought in the remainder of the Hebrew epistle from chapter 10, verse 38, all the way to the end of chapter 13. The writer focuses on the meaning of what it means to live by faith. So the people that he will discuss in Hebrews 11, Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, 
Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and many, many others. These people serve as both evidence to us that the life of faith is possible and incentives to us to follow their example. And that's why the writer brings them up to these first century Hebrew Christians to whom he writes. He's saying, brethren, you need to keep going. Don't cast away your confidence. You need perseverance. Just a little while, Christ is coming. So as God's people right now, as the justified ones, you need to live by faith and don't draw back, but believe to the saving or the deliverance of your soul. He's saying that other people have passed through life and hit the finish line strong, and I want you to do so as well. Now this morning, what I want us to do is look at this chapter then, and first let's look at the definition of faith that is given to us in verse 1, and then we're going to skip forward to verse 6 and talk about the dynamics of faith. And here we have a divinely inspired definition of faith. Now it's not the only thing that faith is, that is, it's not an exhaustive definition. There are other things that we could glean from Scripture as to how to define faith faith. But yet, nonetheless, this is a divinely inspired definition of faith in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We'll unpack that, God willing, in just a moment. But I want to say first that this subject is grossly misunderstood today. Many people have misconceptions about what faith is. You may have heard people say before, I wish I had your faith, as if faith is a sort of natural endowment, like I wish I had your metabolism. Faith is not a natural endowment. Neither is faith a matter of superstition or magic, like a lucky rabbit's foot. Some people think of faith as a matter of magic. Probably have heard the line from Peter Pan in which Tinkerbell says, all it takes is faith and trust and just a little bit of pixie dust. I believe that I can fly. That's not biblical faith. No, faith in God is not the same as superstition or credulity. It's not like saying I believe in Santa Claus or I believe in the Easter Bunny or in the Tooth Fairy. Biblical faith is never irrational. The late John R.W. Stott says that faith is neither whistling in the dark to keep your spirits up nor working yourself up to believe something which you strongly suspect isn't true. That's not biblical faith. You ask, well, then what is it? Well, verse 35 of chapter 10 says that faith is confidence in God. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Confidence and faith are synonyms. And what is confidence? Well, it's certainty that someone is trustworthy and reliable and true. Faith in God, my beloved, is confidence, certainty that God is trustworthy and true and reliable. I like one definition of faith by the late Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, biblical faith is reasoning trust in God. I like that, reasoning trust, or what you might call divine logic. (laughs) Now, we use logic every day, don't we? We reason from cause to effect. We say if church starts at 10.30 and I live 15 minutes away, then I need to leave the house by 10.15 if I will be on time. That's 
reason. That's logic. We're reasoning through such a situation. Well, faith is reasoning trust in God. That is, biblical faith involves deductive reasoning. You see this in at least two places in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 through 30. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Why take ye thought for raiment? Jesus says, don't be given to anxiety about the trappings of life. Instead, consider the lilies of the field. He says, go out and learn something from nature. Consider. Now, if you're going to consider something, you have to do some thinking, right? Go out and look at the beautiful daylilies growing the wildflowers in the meadow. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. That is, they don't put forth a tremendous exertion of energy or effort. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What Jesus is saying is that there's more precision and beauty and detail in a daylily than you could see in Solomon's magnificent temple. And he says, wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, that is, if the Lord puts such effort and shows such attention to detail in just the little flowers that grow by the side of the road or in the meadow, which today is and then tomorrow is cast into the oven. That is, these are daylilies. They don't last very long. If you blink, you'll miss it, you know. I mean, they're here today and then they're gone tomorrow. And if the Lord put such effort into clothing the lilies of the field, shall he not much more clothe you? Now notice the logic here. O ye of little faith, therefore... And that's a conclusion. That shows logic. Therefore, take no thought. He doesn't mean not to plan in advance, but he means don't worry. Don't be anxious in your thinking. Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That's the way the world lives. They're only concerned with the external trappings of life. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You've probably heard the little ditty, said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly Father such as cares for you and me. Now, the birds don't worry, do they? <laughs> because God feeds them, and he says that you should take a lesson from the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, for the Lord feeds them, and are you not much better than they? Yes, my friends, what he's saying here is learn to reason from the lesser to the greater. If God takes care of flowers and if God takes care of birds, then won't he take care of me, for I'm one of his children? You see, he's my heavenly father he's their creator but he's my father learn to reason from the lesser to the greater likewise learn to reason from the greater to the lesser look at romans 8:32. if god spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all now we've been talking about flowers and birds and you're more important than the flowers and the birds that's reasoning from the lesser important to the greater important but here's the greater to the lesser. If God did not spare his own son, that is, if God delivered Christ to be the sin bearer for you, shall he not with him also freely give you all things? 
If God took care of your biggest problem through giving his son, then he's going to take care of every little problem that you face. You see, faith is divine logic. It's learning how to think or to reason from the lesser to the greater, from the greater to the lesser. Faith involves deductive reasoning. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this, the real trouble with little faith is that it does not think. Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in Matthew chapter 6, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. Listen carefully. That's the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand, and it strikes us upon the head, and we become incapable of thinking, helpless and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic, and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them, and draw your deductions. So what is faith? Well, it's confidence in God, reasoning trust, certainty that the God who gave his promise is true to his promise. He's trustworthy. If God takes care of the little things in nature, then he will take care of his children. And if God took care of your biggest problem, the sin problem at the cross, then he will take care of your job, your finances, your health, all of the lesser important problems that seem big to us, yet God, my friends, is trustworthy. It's confidence in God. I believe Christians ought to live confidently, confident living, not full of doubts and fears and perpetual anxiety, but my beloved, we need to put our trust in God. You say, well, I'm afraid to trust him to be in the driver's seat. You know, many of us are control freaks. <laughs> Or let me just point the finger at myself. I have a strong proclivity or tendency toward being in control. I like to control everything. And the fact is, there's very little that I can control. I can't control how other people act or behave. I can't control what they think of me. I can't control whether they do right or behave. The only person I can really control is myself, right? And I even need the Lord's help to do that. You say, well, I want to be in the driver's seat. I don't want to be in the passenger seat. You know, I'll push my foot through the floorboard trying to push the brake if someone else is driving. Well, my beloved, you can trust God not to be your co-pilot, but to be your pilot, to be in control. Somebody says, God is my co-pilot. No, my friends, God is my pilot. And he is the only one who is able to control everything. You say, well, I'm afraid that he's going to let me get hurt. No, my friends, you've got to learn how much he loves you. I probably told you this before, but when my oldest daughter was uh, maybe kindergarten, first grade, I was trying to teach her as we homeschooled one day the meaning of trusting in the Lord. And I had a brainstorm. I thought of that verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and then lean not on your own understanding. And the image of leaning caught hold of me. I said, I have an idea. And I said, Amber, I want you to put your right shoulder against my left shoulder. And I got down on my knees beside her, and she was standing here. 
And I said, put your right shoulder against my left shoulder. And I said, now start to lean against me. Now keep leaning, and I would inch my way, making the angle on which she leaned against me increasingly precarious. First, it was, she was almost straight up and down, and then little by little, as I moved to the right, she became increasingly at a more precarious angle. Finally, she was at such an angle that she was leaning her whole weight upon me. And I asked her the question, I said, now, honey, what would happen if I suddenly moved, either forward or backwards? She said, I would fall. I wouldn't be able to catch myself. And then I asked another question, are you afraid that I might move? And she said, no, Daddy. The reason she wasn't afraid is she knew that I had her best interest at heart. She knew that I was reasonably sane. <laughs> she knew that I loved her. And my beloved, if you are confident in the love of God, perfect love casts out fear. You look at a little baby sitting on his mother's lap. Is that child full of anxiety? No, that little baby is just as content. He's not worried about what's happening in the Ukraine or in Taiwan or in Washington, D.C., or on the streets of America. He's not worried about anything. He's not worried about his next meal. He's not thinking about his portfolio, the stock market, or anything else. Do you know why? Because he's confident in the mother's love. My beloved, if you are confident that God's a God of love and that God is a wise God and that he's a God of sovereignty who does all things well, he's in control, then beloved, you can trust him. And if he gave his best for the likes of you and me, do you think that he will withhold any good thing that you stand in need of in your life? You see, faith is divine logic. It's learning to think, to reason based on the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture, and it's the only way to live. The only way to live. In fact, the life of faith not only takes us forward to the end of the journey. You say, I need faith going forward, but it even takes us all the way back to the creation. Listen to verse 3 in Hebrews 11. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And that brings us to the Next thought, not only is faith reasoning trust, and I want to add this, faith and reason are never pitted against each other in the Bible. Faith and reason are never set over against one another in the Bible. Now, admittedly, faith deals with a different realm than science does. Faith and reason are not, the one is not the antithesis of the other, but faith and Science do not even deal with the same realms. You know what science deals with? Science deals with your sensory perception. I think it was Sir Francis Bacon who gave us the scientific method, which is the basis of all true science. The scientific method says that you observe phenomena around you. You see and you hear and you come into contact with certain things happening. For instance, you walk out into your yard and you see a pile of dirt and you then begin to question, what is this pile of dirt? And you put your finger in it and suddenly a bunch of ants emerge, fire ants. And you begin to make your deductions, where they came from, how they got there, 
what kind of colony they're building. You begin to make scientific analyses based on observation. But you know, the senses, the five senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell are involved in science, aren't they? Science has to do with the observation of phenomena, a hypothesis as to what it means and how it works, experimentation to see if you can repeat the uh, phenomenon, and then finally certain deductions that you draw from it. That's science. But you know, there's more to this world than just what you can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. Isn't that right? There's more to reality. If a surgeon were to open me up on the operating table, he would see my heart and my lungs and my liver and my gallbladder and my brain. But would he find my soul? Would he find my mind? Would he find the intangible part of me? Could he open me up and say, I've finally extracted his personality? You know, your personality. Uh, there's a difference between the heart, the muscle called your heart, and your emotions or your affections. There's a difference, my friends, between your uh, internal organs and your soul and your spirit. Man is not just an animal. The spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth when it dies, but the spirit of man goes back to God who gave it. When God created man, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's something about humanity that cannot be said of rocks, minerals, trees, inanimate objects, even sentient creatures like angels and animals. There's something about man that is immortal that will live on. And my beloved, there's more to this universe than just what you can see. Angels are real. Demons are real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The Lord Jesus Christ at this moment is really, actually seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of the universe. He's coming again one day. And you notice in the first verse, he tells us that even though Faith and science deal with different realms. And I think it's important because today we're being told that you've got to trust the science. Well, trust does not have anything to do with science. Science needs to be verified. It needs to be repeated. You see, trust and science are on different, they deal with completely different ideas. Science deals with the sensory world, the tangible world, but faith deals with the intangible world, and both are necessary because man is not just a body, but he's a body and a soul. Man shall not live by bread alone. You know what that means? It means you need more than just food on your table to exist. You have a soul that needs to be fed too. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we must feed our souls. We must develop, my friends, the inward man as well as the physical, carnal man. I hope that's clear. If, I, if it's not, maybe this verse will clear up my attempt to explain it. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. You see the difference between faith and sight? I can see you today. I know that you're physical beings. I know that you're here. You're sitting on pews. You are breathing air, you are here corporally. But you know, there's more to this world. You're more than just a body, aren't you? You're a body and a soul. A soul and a body, however you want to say it. There's a material and a spiritual. There's a tangible and an intangible. 
there's a physiological or physical and a psychological part to each one of us. And it's a mistake to just assume that we can deal with everything on a purely mechanical or physical basis. That's a mistake. And that's one of the great errors being made by the scientific community today, saying that science can explain everything, and if it can't be explained in a laboratory, then I won't believe it. Sometimes people say, I won't believe in anything I can't see. And I always want to ask the question, do you believe you have a mind? <laughs> and of course, the next question is, have you ever seen it? Do you believe in love? Is there such a thing? Can that be reproduced in a laboratory? Can you take a blood sample and find a love molecule? Or do you believe, my friends, in, uh, in life after death? Is that something that science can verify or can establish or prove? Now, what I'm saying is, as wise people, we need to understand there is a place for true scientific investigation. Now, much of what falls under the canopy or the category of science today is science falsely so-called, as the Bible terms it. It's pseudoscience or mad science. It's false science. It's not true science. But true science will never lead a person away from the idea of God because that's outside of the realm of science. That is without any foundation for science to attempt to explain religion or for faith to say that it is the only answer and that there's nothing legitimate or valid about scientific investigation. I hope that that's reasonably clear this morning. So what I'm saying is that faith is a spiritual sense. Old preachers, when I was growing up, used to say, faith is to the soul what the eye is to the body. You want a good definition? I think that's a good one. Faith is to the soul what the eye is to your body. Now, what does your eye do to your physical life? Does it cause objects to exist? No, it helps you to perceive the objects that are there, right? The eye helps you to perceive the or to grasp the fact that something exists. Faith does the same thing. Faith does not bring into existence something that is not there, but faith helps you to perceive. Your faith, in other words, does not save you for heaven, but your faith can see the one who did save you. It's your eye. Faith is a spiritual sense. And then we might say the life of faith, therefore, is a life that is lived beyond the realm of the five senses. It's a good definition. Faith specializes, as our verse 1 tells us, in two spheres of human uncertainty. It specializes in the unknown future. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, that is, the unknown future, the things that you anticipate or that you are looking forward to, your future. And it is the evidence of things not seen. Faith specializes in the realm of the unknown future and the unseen present. Now, human beings find it very difficult to cope with these two spheres, the unknown future and the unseen present. Science is not comfortable in either of these categories, but faith is very much at home here. I like a quote by Oswald Sanders who said, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. The function of faith, my beloved, is to apprehend or to lay hold upon the unknown future as well as the unseen present. Now, you use faith every day in many respects. 
If you have a GPS when you travel, you're trusting that that little lady in the box or the man in the box, whatever the case may be, knows where your destination is and how to get you there. You're trusting that information, aren't you? Or if you think back to the time when we used to look at a map, you're trusting that the map makers have put the roads and the interstates where they are supposed to be so that you can negotiate your way from one point to the next. You're trusting. You say, well, if that's what faith is, of course everybody has faith. Biblical faith, though, is something even more than that. Everybody does not have what the Bible calls faith. Even though we trust the map makers and we trust the little lady in the GPS box, Yet the fact is, we have greater and more ample reason to trust God. Everybody, though, does not share that point of view. Let's move to this idea of the dignity of faith, why faith is important. And look at verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If we must live by faith in order to be faithful to God as we move forward in the journey of life, it is also true that the person who does not live by faith will never please God. Without faith, it is impossible. If somebody says, Brother Goins, what does that word impossible mean? It means it's not possible. It's impossible to please God without faith. This is why the unregenerate man will never please God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says the carnal mind is enmity against God. That is, it's hostile toward God. There is an innate anger and hatred and malice and antipathy toward God in the heart of the natural man. He hates the God that exists. And he does everything within his power to suppress the knowledge of God. I've always thought it was interesting, the question that I heard one time, if atheists are right that there is no God, why are they so mad at him? <laughs> why are they so angry at a God that does not exist? You know, why do they go to such great lengths to argue against him? And why is there such vitriol and such sarcasm and such animosity in their hearts if he really doesn't exist? The fact is, dear friends, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that's why the natural man, that is before a person is changed by God's grace, can never please God. Now I want to ask you today, do you want to please God in your life? You know, when I was a child, I wanted to please my parents. And it broke my heart to think that they were displeased with me. And I've seen the same thing in my children, in all seven of them. I've seen the same desire to please, and then to think that I was displeased made life very difficult for them. It is possible to please God, but it's not possible without faith. And if you and I are not living by faith, God is not pleased with our lives. Now, that does not mean that he doesn't love us. You know, a parent will always love a child, a godly parent will. doesn't mean that he'll always like him what my mom used to tell me. Michael, I love you, but right now I don't like you very much. <laughs> and the fact is, most young people go through a stage where they're not real likable. 
and you say, okay, it's time for you to establish life on your own, and you're old enough, and it's time for you to, you know, try to use those wings that uh, you've sprouted. The relationship, in other words, is never damaged, but fellowship may be strained. I'm not only thankful, my beloved, that God is my Father, but I want to please my Heavenly Father. And I hope you do as well. But this is something that can never be said of the unregenerate. This is why faith is so vital and important, because without faith it's impossible to please God. Okay, so the just shall live by faith. Without faith it's impossible. You ask me, Brother Mike, what is faith? It is confidence, reasoning trust in God that treats the future as present and the invisible realm as seen. That is, even though I've never been in the future yet, I trust God that it will work the way he said it would. And even though there's much I don't understand, I'm glad to leave that in the hands of a, an all-wise God and even though I wasn't there to see creation, I believe it happened just as God said it did because he's given me faith. Did you know when a person's born again, at the moment you're quickened or God regenerates your heart, at that moment you're given the grace of faith. Ephesians 2, 8, that's exactly what that verse means. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is the gift of God. What I'm saying is everybody doesn't have faith, biblical faith. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. Now, if the Apostle Paul felt the need for the prayers of God's people, then who am I to think that I can do ministry without their prayers and God's help? Paul says, pray for us and pray that the word of the Lord may have free course. That is, that it wouldn't be impeded and pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Here's the reason. For all men have not faith. It is a fact, my beloved, there are people in this world who don't believe in God. And you can't argue them into believing in God. Because they don't have the ability. They've never been born again. They're carnally minded. And the carnal mind is enmity against God. And it's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't have faith. If you believe today, it's because God put his love in your heart. He wrote his law in your heart. You've been born of the spirit. There's something inside of you that can't be explained by mere human or natural phenomena. It's something supernatural. You've been given the gift of faith. And my beloved, everybody doesn't have that out here. If you have it though, that faith needs to be educated and informed by the Word of God. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Now you say, Brother Mike, don't you believe in the science of evolution? Evolution is not science. It's faith. It's secular faith. Science has to do with what? Observation, the five senses. And here's the question, was Darwin there to witness the beginning or the origin of the universe? Were any of these intellectuals and smart people around us who claim to know about the Big Bang, however many hundreds of millions of years ago, were any of them there? My friends, Moses, who wrote about it, wasn't there, right? You weren't there, 
Darwin wasn't there, nobody was there. It's not in the realm of scientific investigation. Now, we could find hints or evidences here and there that will support either the theory of evolution or biblical creation, but yet it really doesn't fall into the realm of science at all. The theory of origins falls into the realm of faith. And here's the question. Do you believe that it's self-created, that it spontaneously generated? Were things that appear around us, was that, were the things that we see around us made by other things that appear? Our text says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That is, the trees did not create themselves, the rocks and the rivers did not create themselves, the molecules were not self-generated. We believe in creation ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God spoke. They were framed by the word, by the command, the divine fiat of God. God commanded and it stood fast. Do you know how the universe was created? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, here's where science can come in. You say, Brother Mike, is there any evidence to support that? Well, first, in your heart, if you've been born again, if you've been given the gift of faith, then you read the biblical account. And if anybody knows how it all started, the God who made it and who gave us this book knows, right? But second of all, dear friends, there's something inside of your heart that says, God has told me that this is how it happened. And I think, again, he would know better than any scientist or philosopher would know. So what he's telling us here, origins does not fall in the realm of science. It must fall in the realm of faith because creation is something that was unseen. It's something that no scientist can verify or validate by observation. How then do we know? How do we perceive the first cause of this universe? Because faith, my beloved, is a response to the revelation of God. Our faith has been informed by Scripture. This book, my beloved, is the Word of God. It is God's divinely inspired and providentially preserved Word. It has survived skeptics' blows. It has survived the test of time. It has been verified by the science of apologetics. There are reasons for our faith. When Peter says, be ready to give an answer, to everyone that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, he's saying that there's a legitimacy to the field of, of apologetics, of biblical apologetics, of defending the faith against the arguments of the skeptic and the unbeliever. I want to ask you today, dear friends, has God given you the gift of faith? Are you a believer? Are you a child of God? There's something inside of you that the unregenerate do not have. And you say, well, Brother Mike, that seems to be a a cheap way of, of defending the idea that we believe in the Genesis account of creation. Well, I'm saying there are scientific supports. For instance, you look at the um, precision, you look at the finely tuned universe that we live in. Have you ever studied a DNA molecule? Now, I know most of us have just learned about DNA molecules in recent years, and we're not scientists. Most of us are not. But if you've ever even seen a picture of the double helix molecule and you've, you have even an inkling of the genetic kind of science and research and the power of the electron microscope and all of the uh, chemical reactions that they're 
discovering that take place. And it's just a mind-boggling, nuclear science. It's a mind-boggling kind of field. And you say, where did all of this knowledge come from? And it's rational. You can discover it. My beloved, do you think all of that came from two rocks colliding together? Or did it come from an intelligent mind, an eternal mind? How much sense would it make if I told you about an airplane flying at 30,000 feet, carrying all of the letters of the alphabet, numerous letters, and that at some point, because of turbulence, that a few of the letters fell out, and suddenly somebody stumbled upon the Oxford English Dictionary because each of these letters fell into precise order. And then a few miles later across the Sahara Desert, someone stumbled upon the uh, Magna Carta that the pilgrims had drafted, you know, and say, well, it just all happened. No, my friends, I tell you, it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe that an intelligent, all-wise, eternal God spoke and created all that existed. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, Psalm 33, 6, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. We are people who live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Because God has given us something that man by nature does not have. And he's given us a book to support it. He's given us information. So he's given you the ability to believe and he's given you a basis for your faith in the word of God. And my friends, you can try to disprove it. You can try to argue against it. But I'll tell you, heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. So how would you define faith this morning, Brother Mike? Somebody asks. I would say that faith is always a response to God's revelation. Faith is always a response to the cause, to the stimulus of God's word. First, it is a response when he speaks in regeneration. And when he says, live, Lazarus comes forth. The hour is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall respond, they shall live. Like Lazarus, when God says, live, faith answers in obedience to the word of God, his divine creative command. And secondly, it's a response to the word of God so far as his revelation. When Peter was fishing on the Sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 5, and Jesus calls out from the shore, children, have you any meat? And Peter probably is a little bit perturbed. He says, no. <laughs> In other words, leave me alone. We're busy here. He's already frustrated. He's been fishing for a long time and they haven't caught anything. Cast the net on the right side. I'm sure he thought, there's no use. I'm the expert fisherman. I'm the professional here. And Jesus, you're not the fisherman. You're the carpenter. <laughs> Why are you telling me how to fish? But he says, Lord, we've toiled all night and have caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will cast down the net. And when they did that, they caught so many fish that the net broke. Faith responded. Even though everything in him and around him argued against it, faith said, I will do what you said. I will trust you. And therefore, the response, my beloved, was a wonderful reward, a wonderful harvest or catch of fish. Faith, my beloved, is trusting God's word in spite of feelings within us, circumstances around us, 
or consequences ahead of us. And when you live like that, even though you can't see the future, and even though you don't understand everything that's happening around you in the present, when you put your trust in God, may I say, you can be faithful to Him and persevere and endure and be patient and keep on keeping on, come what may, because the just shall live by faith. Be thou my